Well, good morning, church. So glad to be with you this morning. We uh, gathered together around God's Word. My name is Matt. I serve out at the West Campus as the West Campus pastor. So I want to say a special good morning to all of my West Campus friends. Miss being with you guys, but I'm so glad to be here with you this morning and to open God's Word. Friends, the summer heat is upon us right now, right? It's oppressive. Got a little cool start this morning, which was great. But man, the heat is here, so we're all looking for something fun that we can do indoors, right? And the classic American pastime to go indoors in the summer is go to the movies. One of my favorite things to do is get a big old bowl of popcorn, a soda, and sit down and watch a great story and just kind of have two hours in the cool where it's just, it's just fun. And one of my favorite things about the movies, it's not the action, it's not the explosions or the chase scenes or anything. For me, it's the plot twists, Okay, it's a game I love to lose, right? Like, I'm sitting there going, okay, he's a goner, right? And they're like, oh, I know what's going to happen next, and this is going to happen. But whenever the storyteller makes it to where they do a plot twist and I didn't see it coming, I love that. It's like my favorite thing because it didn't do what I expected it to do. So even though I lost and the storyteller kind of beat me, I still win because the movie is better than I expected, Right? So even when I'm at home with my kids and we're watching a movie and a plot twist comes, my kids will be like, oh, plot twist. And they start yelling at the TV. You know, they weren't paying attention five minutes earlier, but now all of a sudden it's got their attention, right? They're gripped. They're excited. They're on the edge of their seats. They can't wait to see what's going to happen next. The funny thing is, I'm not a huge fan of plot twists when they happen in real life. Right? I mean, it's all fun and games up there on the screen, but when it happens in real life, I'm out. You know, like, I've got my script, I've got my things that are like, you know, I've got my norms, I've got my expectations, I've got all the things that I like just the way I like them. It's going to go out, play out just with spectacular awesomeness. I just kind of forget that I'm not the director, and the real director has the nerve not to follow my script. In fact, he even changes it all the time. That's frustrating for me. I don't want to be the kind of person that doesn't follow the director. When God brings a plot twist in my life, I want to be the kind of guy that follows. But if I'm honest with you guys, I struggle with that. That's not easy for me. So the question I want us to look at this morning, the thing I really want us to wrestle with is, Man, how do we follow God when he doesn't follow our script? How do we follow the Lord beyond our expectations? What does it look like for us to follow him even in the plot twists of life? So if you'll open your Bibles, we're going to be in Acts chapter 10 today, and that's page 918 in your blue Bibles. I'd like to pick up right where we left off last week with Peter. And we're going to do our best to cover the entire chapter this morning. So buckle up your seatbelts. Here we go. We're continuing our unexpected series. And I think the story we're going to come to today is one of the most unexpected stories in the entire book of Acts. And in fact, I think most of the stories that we've been looking at up until this point are leading up to this one. That's how significant this text is. Last week, we got back on track with Peter's story. And we're going to stick with him again today. If you remember, we left Peter in the city of Joppa right after he had healed Tabitha, raised her 
from the dead. So let's begin here and look at the first two verses of chapter 10, and we'll get, we'll get started. At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion of what was known as the Italian cohort, a devout man who feared God with all his household, gave alms generously to the people, and prayed continually to God. Now, first, some quick geography just so we know kind of where this city is in relation to where we left Peter last week. Caesarea is on the coast of Israel, about a two-day's journey north of the city of Joppa where Peter is currently located. It was a major city in that time. It was the most populous city in Israel, had one of the busiest ports in the world, and it became the capital of the Roman province of Judea. So, It was a very Roman city, not Jewish at all. So right away, the geography of this story is not starting out the way we expect it to. Next, we meet a brand new character named Cornelius, also not a Jewish name, and everything Luke tells us about him defies cultural expectations. Cornelius defies cultural expectations expectations. Three things that are unusual about this character that we have to see. First, he's not the type of person that we would expect to be interested in the things of God. He's not the type of person that we would expect to be interested in the things of God. First of all, Cornelius is a Gentile. And a Gentile is a word that the Bible would use and the Jews would use to describe someone who wasn't Jewish, who didn't follow um, the God of Israel. And most Gentiles were pagans, especially in this day. They worshipped the polytheistic pantheon of Greco-Roman gods and goddesses like Jupiter and Venus and Mars and Mercury. He was also a centurion, a commander of 100 men, a part of a cohort of 600 men. So this guy is important, he's well-known, he's powerful, just unlike really many of the other characters we've met in the book of Acts so far. It would have been rare in those days indeed to find someone of this kind of pedigree interested in the things of God. Secondly, he's not a stereotypical Roman soldier either. Look how Luke describes him in verse 2. He says that he is a devout man. So at some point... Cornelius, this Gentile Roman centurion, had come to be introduced to the God of Israel, and he had decided to turn away from his polytheistic religion and embrace the monotheistic worship of the God of Israel. That's unusual for sure. Jewish people, by the way, had a term for people like this. They're called God-fearers, and that's what Cornelius is regarded as. They were Gentiles who worshiped the God of Israel but who did not become Jewish converts, so to speak. They, only, they didn't practice Judaism in their lifestyle. And, and Jews would certainly respect God-fearers. They appreciated them, but they still wouldn't go close to them because they were still Gentiles. And if they're still Gentiles, that means that they're unclean. And if they're unclean, then they could be defiled by coming into contact with them. So as a God-fearer, Cornelius' devotion was so obvious that his reputation was well known for being generous, giving alms to people, and 
to be a prayer warrior. I mean, this guy was a centurion and he prayed continually. I mean, these are all very strange descriptions of any kind of Roman soldier. But what the, the biggest and most unexpected part of this guy, we see in verse 22, he's well spoken of by the entire Jewish nation. Okay, guys, there's no secret. The Jews and the Romans did not like each other. They hated each other. The Jews saw the Romans as this unwelcome, hostile, occupying force that overtaxed them and didn't rule them with compassion, okay? This would be like saying, you know, a longhorn well-liked by the entire Aggie nation. It's just something that never gets said, right? And then the last observation about Cornelius really blows our hair back here. He receives a visit from an angel. Look at verse three. About the ninth hour of the day, he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God come in and say to him, Cornelius. And he stared at him in terror and said, what is it, Lord? And he said to him, your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God. Now send men to Joppa and bring one Simon who is called Peter. He is lodging with one Simon, a tanner, whose house is by the sea. This is most unexpected, friends. Why is God paying attention to the prayers and the alms of an unclean Gentile Roman centurion. This is really unusual. God knows Cornelius by name? And on top of that, he's telling Cornelius to go find a Jew that he's never met before and bring him back to his house? Something is going on here. Something unusual. Because why doesn't the angel just share the gospel with Cornelius right here? Wouldn't that be simpler? Wouldn't that be better? No. Somehow, some reason, Cornelius is seeking for God. God is going to bring him the gospel, but it's not going to come through an angel. It's not going to come through a vision. It's going to come from a Jew and a Gentile coming together and having a meeting. Something is about to happen. So Cornelius perfectly obeys the angel's commands and sends three people down to Joppa to fetch Peter. And that's where we pick up with Peter again here in verse 9. The next day, so we're now back in Joppa with Peter. The next day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the housetop about the sixth hour to pray. And he became hungry and wanted something to eat. But while they were preparing it, he fell into a trance and saw the heavens opened and something like a great sheet descending, being let down by its four corners upon the earth. In it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air. And there came a voice to him, rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, by no means, Lord, I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And the voice came to him again a second time. What God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times. 
and the thing was taken up at once to heaven. So now, Cornelius defied cultural expectations. Now it's God's turn to defy Peter's expectations. God defies Peter's expectations. See, Peter has a vision too, right? just like Cornelius. But instead of an angel appearing, it's a sheet full, full of all kinds of clean and unclean animals descending from the sky, accompanied by this voice from heaven that we presume to be the Lord. And it gives Peter three unusual commandments. The first command is an invitation. It's an invitation. Rise, kill, and eat. Peter was hungry. He was ready for lunch, right? And God sends him food, but it's not the kind of food that Peter would expect God to send to him. I mean, God sends him bacon, lobster, and shrimp. All kinds of food that are not kosher for a Jewish person to eat. And Peter outright says no to God's command. He knows the book of Leviticus explicitly prohibits eating unclean animals like these. Peter probably thinks he's being obedient, like this is some sort of test or something. But God corrects Peter's misunderstanding by giving him a second commandment, a correction that is also a commandment. And the second one is, what God has made clean, do not call common. Whoa. Plot twist. This is it, guys. This is the most transformational verse in the entire chapter. Peter grew up in a world that revolved around having clear distinctions between what was clean, unclean, and holy. It not only determined what kind of food that Peter could eat, it determined what kind of people he could be around. It even determined how he approached the temple and worship when he was in Jerusalem. What God was commanding Peter to do flew in the face of Peter's entire worldview at this point. But God is correcting Peter, his misunderstanding, because Peter had yet to fully understand the implications of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ and what it meant for the Judaism he had grown up with. Friends, our right relationship with God, because of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, is made possible by his shed blood, not by the blood of bulls and goats. He was a better substitute for us than any bull or goat could ever have been. His blood is the only way that anything unclean can be cleansed and then made holy. So if that's true, in giving us Jesus, God renders animal sacrifice unnecessary at the resurrection. If there's no longer a need for animal sacrifice, then there's no longer a need to make a distinction between which animals are clean and unclean. God has declared them all clean. Peter can have bacon. That's a good thing. That's a good thing. So this third and final command connects everything together and helps us understand why God had Cornelius, of all people, send for Peter to come visit his home. God wants the gospel to extend beyond Jerusalem, beyond Judea and Samaria, to the outermost parts of the earth. And who lives in the outermost parts of the earth? 
unclean Gentiles. If you can eat bacon now, then you can also go to Caesarea. And if you can go to Caesarea, then you can go into a Gentile's home. And if you can go into a Gentile's home, then you can eat his food. And if you can eat his food, you can share the gospel with him too. That's the mission. That's the mission that that God wants Peter to have and to go and to do. Rise, go down, and accompany them without hesitation. Don't think twice about it. Go. You do not have to worry about the distinctions anymore. He no longer needs to concern himself with being clean or unclean because just as Jesus said in Mark 7.15, there is nothing outside of a person that by going into him can defile him. But the things that come out of a person, those are the things that defile him. Friend, the problem with us that needs a sacrifice, the problem with us that needs a savior, does not corrupt us from the outside in. The problem is the sin in our hearts, and that corrupts us from the inside out. And Gentiles don't jeopardize right relationship with God. Even though their lives are wildly different than ours, they are no threat. God wants them to have right relationship with him and have their sin taken away just as much as he wants that for us. And the only way that can happen is that people who have come to know Jesus as their Savior go out into the world of the unclean without hesitation and share his good news about Jesus. And that's what Peter does. Even though he doesn't fully understand, even though he may not even fully agree yet, Peter grabs six of his friends and the three people that came down from Caesarea and they make their way back to to Cornelius' home. He welcomes them into his house and then he asks Peter to share what the Lord has commanded him. I don't have time to go through everything that Peter says here in his sermon uh, to Cornelius and his family, but if we'll look here at verses 28 and verse 34, I think we'll get a good summation of it and we'll kind of unpack it here. And he said to them, you yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit anyone of another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. And then in verse 34, truly I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. Friends, now we begin to see why was Cornelius such an unusual character at the beginning of this chapter? It's because Jesus Christ isn't just the Lord of the Jews. He is Lord of all. He is Lord of all. Jesus even says, everyone who seeks finds. Everyone who knocks, the door will be opened. God will extend his reach as far as it needs to go for anyone who is willing to call on the name of the Lord Jesus to be saved. That's what Cornelius was doing. That's why God paid attention to his prayers, and that's why he needed Peter to go and share the gospel with him. 
And that's why Peter now has no problem defying Jewish expectations. It's Peter's turn now to defy some expectations. Peter defies Jewish expectations. He's going to do that in three ways. First, he breaks Jewish law. Peter breaks Jewish law. As soon as Peter crosses the threshold of Cornelius' home, he is breaking the Jewish law of the day. But it was not a biblical one. Over the years, rabbinical teaching was such, um, it got so strict and so overzealous about the distinctions between unclean, clean, and holy that it went beyond what God intended for it to be. It became so intense that the rabbinical teachers would even suggest that people needed to avoid the Gentiles entirely because they were a threat. And even though Peter was disregarding one of the most fundamental Jewish laws by entering Cornelius' at home, Cornelius's home, it did not contradict the word of God. Cultural customs, social norms are hard to break. We sometimes obey them just as much as we obey the word of God. But if we want to extend God's reach as far as he wants it to go, we are going to have to obey him over and above those norms, which is what Peter does. He breaks down the barriers of the dividing walls between him and Cornelius by showing no partiality with the gospel. Peter shows no partiality with the gospel. See, Peter gets it now. What he didn't understand before, maybe what he didn't agree with before, he's, he's all in. All God said to him was what God has made clean don't call common. And here Peter is putting it in his own words, truly I understand that God shows no partiality. The word partiality is interesting. It means lifting of the face. And it's something a little bit more than favoritism as some translations render it because it's an idiom in, in, and it means uh, it's a, an expression for a judge who looks at a man's face and renders a verdict based on how much he likes the person or not, not based on the merits of the case. That's not just favoritism, that's unjust. And I think it's dawned on Peter that just a few days earlier from this, he never would have given Cornelius the time of day. But here he is, sitting in his house, eating his food, sharing the gospel with Gentiles. God is doing for Cornelius the same thing he had done for Peter without distinction and without partiality. Friends, there is nothing about a person's race, political affiliation, social status, criminal background, sexual preference, knowledge of the Bible, any category that you really want to name that could persuade God to be more or less interested in making salvation available to them. We all need salvation. We all need a Savior. And God makes it available to all without distinction, without partiality, without hesitation. And of course, that's just what happens. That's the amazing part of the story. At the end of the chapter, the Holy Spirit descends upon Cornelius and his household and they all begin speaking in tongues just like what happened in Acts chapter 2. 
And Peter baptizes Gentiles into the family of God. He baptizes Gentiles into the family of God. Whatever fears Peter had about breaking Jewish customs and laws is now completely gone away. He's fully on board, full steam ahead, so much so in verse 47 he says, can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And so he baptizes the first Gentile converts into Christianity. He now looks at Cornelius the same way Ananias looked at Saul and calls him brother. It's a beautiful, beautiful picture. Peter now sees no distinction between himself and Cornelius. What once was someone who is unclean and to be avoided is now someone that he can embrace and call brother. Two men who could have been could not have been more far apart from each other, have been brought together and have fellowship and friendship, not based on their looks, not based on the color of their skin, not based on their performance or preference, but simply by their common union in Jesus Christ. Praise God. And praise God that Peter didn't keep arguing with God about whether or not he could eat bacon. This is an amazing story. And it's a real one. It's a true story. It actually happened, and it still carries implications for you and for me to this day. That doesn't mean an angel's going to visit you and tell you to go, you know, visit someone in Caesarea, but it does mean that if God wants to extend his reach through people who are willing to follow him beyond their own scripts, beyond their own expectations, We need to be ready to follow him. So how do we do that? What does that look like? Three ideas for us here as we close. God's reach can extend beyond our expectations when our prejudices don't overrule God's word. When our prejudices don't overrule God's word. I said it. I said it. We all have prejudices. Okay? We all have preconceived opinions, attitudes about people and customs that don't do life the way we expect them to. We all have them. Peter did too. He lived in a world where their distinctions were so important that people were drawing thick black lines all the way around people groups and viewpoints and opinions And it taught him not just to avoid Gentiles, but to consider them as threats, even to consider them as lesser human beings. Those norms and laws may have started with God's instructions, but they went too far. There is no biblical command that instructs a Jew to not go inside a Gentile's home. Those cultural norms came from the country he lived in, their nationalism, their tradition, their expectations, not from God. Those norms became so strong in Peter's life that he, when God invites him to rise, kill, and eat, what does Peter say? By no means, Lord. There is no more ironic moment in Peter's life than this one, when he's looking at the Lord Jesus or speaking to the Lord Jesus, calling him Lord while disobeying him. 
thinking that he was right in so doing. I don't want that to happen to us. I don't want our Christianity to be lived out that way either. Because we live in a country and in a time where thick black lines are being drawn around people and viewpoints. And I hope that our nationalism, I hope that our traditions, I hope that our expectations aren't leading us to disobey God, thinking that we're being right in the process. Are you aware of how your cultural norms and biases are shaping your interpretations of what God wants you to do? That's the question I've been wrestling with this week. And that's a hard one to wrestle with. God's reach extends beyond our expectations when our prejudices don't overrule his word. Secondly, our obedience doesn't require understanding or agreement. God's reach extends beyond our expectations when our obedience doesn't require understanding or agreement. One of the most impossible things in the whole wide world to do as a parent is to get your children in the car on time with a good attitude. It can't be done. It's impossible. Don't even try. Darcy and I will tell the kids, all right, kids, get your shoes on, time to go. And instead of obedience, we get questions, right? But why? Where are we going? What are we going to be doing there? What time are we going to get back? It's frustrating as parents when that happens, but I'll admit they're just doing the same thing you or I would do if an adult just up and said it's time to go, right? I want to understand and agree before I obey. That's true. That's true for me too. So one thing Darcy and I have tried over the years is uh, we just stopped telling our kids where we're going. (laughs) For everything. Initially, that made things worse, of course. So many questions. But instead of answering them, we instead just said, do you trust us? And begrudgingly, they would eventually say, yes. And each time they followed us, they would learn that if they would trust us, we would lead them someplace that was good for them, like ice cream. Or one time, we even loaded them in the car and took them all the way to the airport and then all the way to the Disney World without telling them where we were going. And they were like, okay, I can trust mom and dad. They don't want to ruin my life. (laughs) Now, I know that analogy breaks down. God doesn't always want to take us to Disney World. But you understand what I mean. Did you notice that in this story, Cornelius was more obedient than Peter was? Did you catch that? No questions from Cornelius. No disagreements, no hesitations. We're meant to see that. Sometimes we use questions as a way to delay our obedience. Well, if I just, if I just know a little bit more why God wants me to do this, then I'll, I'll go. Or I'm just not quite there with God on this yet before we obey. We're just like kids. We're finding creative ways to disobey and not do what God's asking us to do. Friends, when our obedience doesn't have a prerequisite, We give God something to work with. We give God something to bless. He wants to extend his reach 
to people who don't yet know Christ, but he also wants to transform our hearts in the process. He wants to grow our faith as we go, as we obey. And he's not going to do that before. He's going to do that while we are obeying him. God's reach extends beyond our expectations when our obedience doesn't require understanding or agreement. And then finally, God's reach extends beyond our expectations when our reach doesn't show partiality. When our reach doesn't show partiality. When I was in college, I went on a mission trip to South Padre Island during spring break when the entire island turns into one gigantic party, day and night. Okay? Our goal was to share the gospel with our peers while we were down there, offer them some free breakfast, give them some free rides to and from the bars even, anything we could just to get a word in with them to share the gospel. I was way outside my comfort zone in that situation. Um, I'm not a partier in college. I didn't really drink a ton. wasn't really my scene. And I thought while I was down there, this is a waste of time. And I'm sharing the gospel with someone who's so drunk they're not going to remember it the next day. Why am I even here? This seems silly to me. I found myself looking down on the people I was ministering to. They were drunk, they were hungover, they were disheveled. One guy even licked the entire side of our 15-passenger van. I'm not kidding. But by the end of the week, hundreds of college students had accepted Christ. We even had some who stopped partying and got on the vans with us to share Christ with other people. That trip was a conversion experience for me. Not in terms of salvation, but in terms of how I see other people and how God wants to reach them through me and despite what I may think of them. I need to see them the way God does. God has not been partial with us, so we should not be partial with anyone else. Is there a category of person that you don't think that you would ever be willing to share Christ with? That they're too unclean to talk to, too much of a threat, that they'll never listen, they'll never pay attention to me, they'll never believe, they're not the type of person to be interested in spiritual things. Friends, we are called to share the gospel with Democrats. (laughs) Republicans too, right? They need Jesus, all of them. God wants criminals to come to salvation. He wants homeless people to find rest in Jesus. God's heart for Muslims is enormous. The workaholic, the alcoholic, the homosexual, the self-righteous, the broken, the marginalized, the rich, the poor. God wants them all to have a chance to respond to the gospel just like Cornelius did. And he is not going to send an angel to do our job. But he will continue to give us plot twist opportunities to get our attention so that we'll follow him beyond our expectations so that he can expand his reach to the ends of the earth. May he find us excited and on the edge of our seats 
ready and willing to follow. Would you pray with me? Father, you have done great things in this story. You have made the gospel available to a people that we didn't think it was going to be available. It was a plot twist. It was so unexpected in what you've done. You've not shown partiality towards us. You've not treated us as our sins deserve. While we were still sinners, Father, you sent your son Jesus to die in our place so that we can have right relationship with you. You extended your reach to reach me. So, Father, would you work in my heart so that I can extend your reach through the people and the places where you've placed me. Father, we want to follow you beyond our expectations. We want to follow you beyond the plot twists of life and keep in step with you as we go. Father, we trust you, we love you, and we thank you for your word today. In Jesus' name.